I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Romans chapters 1 through 4. This is the New King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. First, a word about the book of Romans. Romans was written to believers in Rome around 58 AD. Paul was likely residing in Corinth at the time of the writing. With regard to the people of Rome, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia writes the following. As to Rome itself, we may picture it at the date of this epistle as containing with its suburbs a closely massed population of perhaps 800,000 people, a motley host of many races with a strong oriental element among which the Jews were present as a marked influence, despised and sometimes dreaded, but always attracting curiosity. Now still as a matter of introduction, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, you'll see that I have some important words for salvation listed that are used in the book of Romans with their definitions. Those words are grace, faith, believe, sin, and righteous or righteousness, and justify. You may want to look that over and see the underlying Greek words that support those words, and we'll be saying more about that as we go along. We begin with the introduction to Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. A greeting, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first seven verses contain Paul's greeting to the believers in Rome, along with his statement of purpose. You'll notice that Paul clearly states that his preaching and ministry is God-ordained. He mentions his own apostleship twice in verses 1 and 5. If, as was suggested in this introduction to the Romans, Paul was residing in Corinth at the time of this writing, we might imagine that the issue of Paul's apostleship was a sensitive topic in light of his discourse to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As a matter of fact, the issue of Paul's apostleship was complicated by the selection of Matthias as Judah's replacement in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. So here's the question. Who's apostle number 12? Is it Paul or is it Matthias? Now, you might say both, but there's a problem with that answer. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus said the following, Assuredly, I say to you, that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But wait, there's more. We see the New Jerusalem, which is established in Revelation chapter 21. And of that chapter, verse 14 says the following. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
If you'd like more study on this issue, then see my notes on Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. So Paul clearly establishes his authority as an apostle here, along with his calling from God to preach the Messiahship of Jesus Christ to all nations. We see that in verse 5. Now, the first seven verses are packed full of fundamental Christian principles. Now, recognizing that many people listen to these podcasts without being actually able to look and study the words and the underlying Greek words and so forth, I'm just going to hit the non-technical parts for your reading pleasure here, and you can go back and study them more closely later on. These seven verses that are packed with the fundamental Christian principles are, first of all, verse 1, where we see the term a servant of Jesus Christ. Let it suffice to say that that means, literally, that as believers we are the property of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 2 we see Jesus as the Christ. Of course, the Greek word there is Christos, means Messiah. And he was promised in the Old Testament. We see an exact description of that promise in verse 3, which says that Jesus was physically descended from David making him the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. I've written an article on the Davidic throne, and you may look at that under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. If you wonder about the genealogy of Jesus, look at the notes on Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and Luke chapter 3, verses 23 to 38. In verse 4, we see that Jesus is uniquely distinguished as the Son of God by the Spirit of Holiness. The Spirit of Holiness is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Some have suggested that there is a special emphasis on the measure of the Holy Spirit here that's unique to Christ, but the text actually makes no such distinction. In verse 5, regarding Paul's apostleship, we uh, notice that Paul proclaims that he is that twelfth apostle. The Greek word for nations, used there, ethnos, is the word which indicates non-Jewish or Gentile nations. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul specifically notes that his apostleship is directed toward Gentiles, while Peter's is directed toward the Jews. In verse 6, we see that as believers, we are also called. That's important. Called of Jesus Christ, just as Paul was called. This verse indicates the Gentile inclusion of those Roman recipients mentioned in verse 5. And then finally, in verse 7, Paul refers to believers as those who are called to be saints. Believers come to Christ by the provisions of John chapter 6, verse 44. That verse says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. In verses 8 through 15, Paul essentially says, I'd like to come, but this letter will just have to do for now. Verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by some means now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. 
Paul commends the Roman believers in verse 8 for their stand in the faith. In verse 9, the King James and New King James Version, they add the phrase, in my prayers. The Greek text implies that by simply stating the fact that Paul makes remembrance without ceasing. Beginning in verse 10, Paul expresses a desire to visit them in Rome, but pressing commitments have prevented it. He further makes the point here that his Roman audience here is comprised of largely Gentile believers in verse 13. Notice particularly in verse 14 that Paul expresses his gospel commitment to Greeks and barbarians. Because the cultural norm during this period was dominated by Hellenistic or Greek influence since Alexander the Great, a.k.a. Alexander III, king of Macedon, from 336 to 323 B.C., Paul divides the Gentiles into two categories. Those two categories are Greek-speaking and non-Greek-speaking, or barbarians. Paul's reference to wise and unwise is to be understood as educated and uneducated. Romans was not written with the Jewish audience in view, as we'll see when we get to Romans chapters 9 through 11. And that's where Paul deals with the issue of the Jews' relationship with God. Now, what about righteousness? Two really good verses here, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul suffered much in the process of preaching the gospel of Christ. Considered by the Roman government to be a sect of Judaism, Christians suffered considerable persecution at the hands of Jewish leaders and later by the Roman government itself. Paul indicates that this message of Christ went first to the Jews and then to the Greeks, a message for which he was not ashamed. Now here's a recurring theme. The just, being the Greek word dikaios, also known as righteous, also known as believers, the just are righteous through faith. That Greek word pastis, trusting God completely for salvation, is what that means. The same root in its verb form is found in verse 16, and there it's translated believes. That's the Greek word pistuo. It's always been that way, all the way back to a direct reference to this fact in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, regarding Abraham, where there it says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Paul makes reference in verse 17 to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, which says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, by the way, there are two other New Testament references to that very same phrase, the just shall live by faith, found in Paul's writings. And those two are Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. The just, that term, is a term meaning being righteous in God's eyes. All believers are righteous in God's eyes. That's the effect of Christ's death on the cross. So how are you made righteous before God? When you trust Jesus Christ for salvation, in other words, ask Christ to save you in prayer, declaring that you are trusting no one nor anything else except Christ to get you to heaven, then you are made righteous or just before God. In other words, all believers are just before God. Paul makes it clear in verse 16 that this is the unadulterated, clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. One more thing. Paul's emphasis in verse 17 of from faith to faith indicates that it is only by faith that we are justified from start, in other words, from faith, to finish, in other words, to faith. From faith, start, 
to faith finish. What about an alternative method to righteousness before God? Well, we deal with that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things." Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things that are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So here's what we get out of these verses, and here it is. Alternative methods of righteousness before God simply don't exist. Let's get our bearings here from verse 18. The verb translated is revealed, apocalypto, is present passive indicative in the Greek text, indicating that God's wrath is being revealed against ungodly men at the time of Paul's writing. Verses 19 to 32 describe the process over time and generations whereby mankind had become so depraved. Notice verse 19. It says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. The verb found there is, it indicates present tense, a continuing action or state. In other words, contemporaries are in view here. The Greek preposition in is used with the dative form of the pronoun them, and thus can be translated in them or to them. So how is God made manifest to these wicked men? Well, God's incredible creation testifies to God, we see in verse 20, leaving them without excuse. While man naturally resists trust in the supernatural God, each person still remains accountable for his wickedness and rejection of God, also seen here in verse 20. Man, for the most part, in all generations, has chosen to worship things rather than God even making replica gods that resemble mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Look closely at verse 21. This is important. There is a line that people cross where their hearts are hardened to the gospel. 
In other words, it says their foolish hearts were darkened. Just like Pharaoh back in Exodus, look at Exodus chapter 10, a point where God gave them up or over. Look at this phrase in verses 24, 26, and 28. More evidence that Paul is talking about contemporaries here is the present active indicative tense of professing in verse 22. As seen in verse 23, these cannot be satisfied with the biblical view of God. They insist on chipping away at the very attributes that make God, well, who he is, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. Of course, that's the very essence of idolatry. Interestingly enough, Paul equates covetousness with idolatry over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Wow, now that certainly brings idolatry home in our society, doesn't it? Before we analyze verse 25, let's look at the definition of humanism in the English dictionary. Here's what it says. An outlook or system of thought attaching prime importance to human rather than divine or supernatural matters. Verse 25 describes these people as those who exchange the truth of God for the lie. They reject the God of the Bible. Instead, they worshiped and served the creature or creation rather than the Creator. Verse 25 captures the very essence of exactly what humanists in today's society are doing. There's nothing new here. Paul himself warned of humanism. Unfortunately, many believers allow a certain degree of humanism to creep into their biblical view of God. Whether they have allowed it through ignorance or a desire to embrace the world or just outright rebellion against the one true God, it's still very wrong. Once you reject the God of the Bible, moral depravity becomes the natural byproduct. We see that in verse 26. And, and by the way, if you wonder what God thinks about homosexuality, look carefully at verses 26 and 27. Let's face it, rejection of God leads to a depraved society. You meet them every day, people who have no interest whatsoever in becoming righteous before God. They even scoff at the notion that we, as believers, trust God, some even feeling it's their mission in life to destroy our faith. Well, you've met the debased mind of verse 28. Two words are quite significant here, debased and the other word fitting or not fitting. I deal with both underlying Greek words in the written notes, but here's the deal. The reprobate mind rejects the absolutes of God's word. Having done so, their unique value system has no foundation, no guiding principles. At that point, anything goes. Nothing is immoral of itself. Thus, we see the direct results of humanism, a society that has no absolutes with regard to God or the Bible. What follows that? Well, that's seen in verses 29 to 32. Without a moral compass, there's an unapologetic lawlessness and a rejection of God's principles. As you read verses 18 to 32, you may wonder which period of time Paul is referencing. The Old Testament is full of polytheistic cultures, including Israel, during much of their history. The tendency to offer substitutes in place of serving our one true God, well, that's a tendency of man that is reflected in every generation throughout history. Paul's picture of this rejection of God is not intended to be reflective of just one race of people during a specific era. Look around. Things haven't really changed much since the pagan cultures of the Old Testament offered their babies in sacrifice to Moloch. I mean, let's face it. When God is pushed to the background, wicked things take place in a society. 
We see an interesting example to this discussion in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 19 to 30. We're told that the nations which had previously occupied Canaan were vomited out of the land because of these very wicked practices, and in those practices is included homosexuality. That's significant inasmuch as we see that God strongly condemned that practice even among the godless heathen. That brings us to chapter 2, where we see that God's judgment is righteous. With all the talk of judgment in chapter 2, you may want to review the article entitled Six Judgments Found in the New Testament. It's an article that I've written that's on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or you can find it under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. In this chapter, Paul talks about the law and its relationship to Jews as well as Gentiles. Now, don't let this chapter throw you. It can't be understood properly without chapter 3, where Paul pulls these verses into proper context. Both chapters are required to complete the thought. So, just to give us proper perspective before we read chapter 2, keep the following verses from Romans 3 in mind. Now, we're not to Romans 3 yet, but... I have four verses that I want you to be thinking about while we read chapter 2. First is Romans 3.10, which says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And finally, Romans 3.28, which says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So keep these verses from chapter 3 in mind. Whenever you read the verses in chapter 2 and begin to think that Paul is somehow suggesting that eternal life can be obtained by keeping the law, then refer to his clarifications of chapter 2 and chapter 3, those four verses we just looked at, and you'll see, no, it can't. Well then, you ask, what is meant by some of these law-oriented comments in chapter 2? Well, do this for me. Each time you read a statement in chapter 2 that would seem to indicate that keeping the law can somehow make someone worthy of eternal life, then read again these four verses from chapter 3, which are part of the same discussion by Paul. And that should put it into perspective for you. Now let's add one more clarification to this discussion. Paul in chapter 2 is tactfully saying the same thing to these Romans that James did in James chapter 2 verse 10 when he said, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For those who pride themselves in keeping the law for righteousness, James is clear about this. He says, Breaking the law just once destroys the whole proposition. Now there's another interesting parallel between Romans 2 and James 2 the role of one's religious persuasion in salvation. The Jews about whom Paul is speaking here are no more saved because of their Jewish religious persuasion than the devils of James chapter 2, verse 19, where James actually says there, You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. Salvation is strictly about a relationship, a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. God's judgment is just, we see beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality." But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So with all the all-have-sinned clarifications stated above, which we saw in the introduction to chapter 2, keeping those in mind, let's look at chapter 2 in proper context. We see through the chapter that being a Jew and having the law of Moses makes one accountable to God, but doesn't provide a layer of protection against God's wrath when a Jew declines salvation through Jesus Christ. This chapter dismisses the possibility that a Jewish heritage somehow serves as a sufficient basis for entry into eternal life, because it doesn't. Righteousness is all about a faith relationship with Jesus Christ without regard to one's religious heritage. That being the case, we see the equal footing with regard to salvation for both Jews and Gentiles, a point specifically driven home in verses 9 and 10. That dismisses the notion that somehow a less-than-depraved lifestyle gives one some sort of an advantage with regard to eternal life. Paul kicks off this chapter by stating that those who pride themselves in judging people by the law of Moses are guilty of breaking the law themselves. Verses 2 and 5 show that a righteous judgment is ahead for all of us based upon absolute truth. Chapter 2 begins with a conjunction. That conjunction is therefore. That ties the preceding indictment against godlessness in chapter 1 to the concept he's preparing to address. So what is that concept? Well, here it is. While we're looking at Gentile depravity in the preceding verses, Jewish morality is still not sufficient to deliver one into eternal life. It's back to James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever shall keep the whole law, and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Whether you demonstrate a total disregard for God, or simply fall slightly short of keeping the entirety of the Jewish law, from God's perspective, it's all the same. Condemnation. The Jews won't have a leg up on Gentiles when judgment comes. Incidentally, the Jewish connection here is detailed quite specifically in verses 17 to 29, which we're going to look at in just a few moments. Let's make certain that one point is very clear about these 11 verses. Paul is talking about the judgment of lost people here. Moreover, we're looking specifically at unregenerate Jews, indicated by the fact that they've taken upon themselves to be the judge of Gentiles, according to verse 1. Again, the key to the identity of those being discussed here is clearly seen in verses 17 to 29. This is not the judgment seat of Christ for Christians. Those people without a salvation relationship with Jesus Christ appear at the white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. While the judgment of God is seen in verse 3, verse 4 offers hope. In the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, I do a word study of words found there, goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, leads, and repentance. But let's just summarize verse 4, keeping the definitions of those words in mind. 
Here it is. It's because God is kind that he is patient and suffers long with our rejection of God that allows us to be brought to a change of mind or attitude toward God. Paul expresses it concisely to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 21. There he says, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that salvation includes the package of repentance and faith. It's a package. Verses 5 and 6 deal with the state of the unregenerate heart. Now remember, we're talking about the judgment of the unregenerate in these 11 verses. The suggestion of verse 5 seems to lend validity to the notion seen in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, that the works of the unregenerate at the white throne judgment will be significant, even though all who appear at that judgment will land in the lake of fire at its conclusion. Read Revelation 20, 11 through 15 for more clarification on that issue. Verse 6 in this passage perhaps references Psalm 62, 13, It's meant to jolt them into reality based upon the first five verses. And here it is. All have sinned and therefore have committed unlawful works, and God will be forced to invalidate anyone's righteousness based upon anything less than perfectly kept works. Look at Romans 3, verse 10 and verse 23 for more indication there. Now look very closely at context here. Or verses 7 through 11, they'll confuse you. It's a Jewish context, an unrepentant Jewish context. The Jewish subjects here have religion, but they don't have Jesus Christ. They are condemnatory toward Gentiles, but they themselves don't have a valid relationship with God. While their Judaistic faith should have led them into a salvation relationship through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, instead they declined to receive Christ. I think that's what Paul means in verse 7, with the phrase, by patient continuance in doing good. Their observance of Jewish principles should have continued into an acknowledgement of Christ as Savior. However, they reject the eternal life of verse 7 because it says they do not obey the truth in verse 8. Without this Jewish context, one might think that salvation is attained by works, but not so. As a matter of fact, Paul clarifies this point down in verse 16 when he concludes, "...in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." We'll read that verse again in just a few moments. So, verses 9 and 10 speak of works, but secondarily to a covenant relationship of salvation through Jesus Christ. Good works don't save you. Bad works don't condemn you. What you've done with the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, that's the determining factor. People who have received Jesus Christ as Savior have eternal life. Those who haven't, they have eternal damnation. Verse 11 makes it clear that there is no favoritism when Paul declares, for there is no partiality with God. So, to sum up these first 11 verses, good deeds can't earn eternal life, not by Jews, not by Gentiles. The judgment of God will be conducted according to truth, we see in verse 2. We're now prepared to see the principle upon which one may have eternal life in these next verses, verses 12 through 16. Romans chapter 2, verse 12. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these 
although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Now, verses 12 through 15 here can be very easily misunderstood if you take them out of context. Paul is taking away the differentiation between those who have been living by the law of Moses, being Jews, and those who have not, being Gentiles. In no way is Paul suggesting that the ignorant can be saved by an alternate means. What he is saying in these verses is that Gentiles, without the law, have an equal condemnation from their consciences as the Jews do from the law. The reason? Well, it's because their consciences are initially seated with the basic principles of nature, those principles of good and evil. That foundation was laid in this discussion back in chapter 1, verse 20. It said there, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Consciences become seared later in life as a result of continued evil doing. That principle, by the way, is seen in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Now, the key to verses 12 through 15 is verse 16, which says, "...in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." God's judgment is going to be conducted, not according to man's ability to keep up good works, but, as it says, quote, "...by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." That message of grace through faith becomes the dominant theme in the chapters that follow chapter 2. But first, the futility of an attempt at salvation by any other means other than faith is emphasized in this chapter. Now, don't be thrown by verse 13. Keeping the law of Moses throughout one's lifetime has never been done by anyone except Jesus. That fact is made abundantly clear in Romans chapter 3. You'll miss the point here completely if you're of the notion that there are those who can keep the law. No, they can't. Now, some might not quite see the significance of Paul's usage of the word gospel, the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. Let me just say, Paul uses the word gospel as a technical term, never lightly or in a generic fashion. We see clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1-4, through 4, that Paul regarded the gospel message to mean that one must believe in the efficacy of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and receive this message by faith as their only means whereby they may go to heaven. Again, let me say, if you read verses 12-16 through 16 and somehow think that you're seeing an alternate means of getting to heaven, read the passage in my notes again. And you'll, after you read more carefully, realize that is simply not the case. Quite the opposite is being emphasized there. And when you read the introduction to chapter 2, you'll see there that it's impossible for one to keep the law of Moses to attain righteousness. Then we deal with the issue of circumcision of one's heart in verses 17 through 29. Here's a terminology clarification. Circumcision in this passage is a reference to Jewish people, and uncircumcision is a reference to Gentiles. The rite of circumcision was an exclusively Jewish practice ordained by God for His people Israel. 
It was a token of God's national covenant with the Jewish people. See the article on the Abrahamic covenant for more details on that. You can find that article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. So we begin now with verse 17, chapter 2. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh." But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In verses 17 to 24, Paul's driving home the James 2.10 concept. He's saying, in essence, if any of you Jews have ever broken the law of Moses, you're a lawbreaker, and you're not worthy of salvation. Paul really drives this point home when he says in verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. By the way, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. That verse says, Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Paul reinforces that in verse 25. As a matter of fact, the law is mentioned nine times in these verses with additional mentions of it with the phrase, the letter. Then in verses 26 through 28, Paul engages in a little Jew-infuriating reasoning. He says, what about the non-Jewish person who keeps the law? Does that act make him righteous? Observant Jews during that period of time would take exception to that notion. Paul's showing how ridiculous the righteousness through law-keeping mentality really is. Then we see the transition toward his point in verse 29, the last verse of this chapter. In this verse, Paul explains that it's a heart thing. You're righteous based upon the Holy Spirit's impact on your heart. While man praises outward conduct, God looks at the heart, verse 29. Interestingly enough, it was always a heart thing. People then and now mistakenly thought salvation was acquired through doing something rather than establishing a faith relationship with God. Again, remember Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, regarding Abraham, it says, And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Favor with God has always been about faith and has never been about works and never been about one's religious persuasion. 
And keep in mind that chapter 3 solves the dilemma that Paul intentionally creates in chapter 2. And so that brings us to chapter 3. Do the Jews have a leg up or not? Verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflict wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Now, here Paul's continuing the discourse from chapter 2. What do the Jews have over the Gentiles? That's Paul's question here. Well, the answer is simply this in verse 2. They were first to get the gospel, the oracles of God. That's it, nothing more. An interesting proposition is seen in verse 3 with regard to the gospel-rejecting Jew. Does his rejection of the gospel message create an alternate means whereby a Jew may get to heaven? No, it does not. Interestingly, in verse 4, Paul draws from Psalm 51, 4. It says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judged. Now, by the way, here David refers to God's righteous judgment in the light of his own sin. So if, as is suggested by David's own words, God's righteousness thrives in the face of our own unrighteous acts, then aren't we doing God a favor when we sin? Or, as he puts it in verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, well, you see, he puts it another way down in verse 8, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say. In other words, some people were accusing Paul of preaching a message that God's righteousness thrives when we sin. Now, verse 5 completes the thought of chapter 2. Since we're unable to keep the whole law without a single violation, the law accentuates the righteousness of God and it condemns man. This verse even addresses the that's not fair issue. If one is unable to keep the whole law because of human frailty, Does that mean that God went overboard in establishing such strict guidelines? Well, not at all. The strong rejection of the notion that God somehow didn't see this whole thing coming is disputed with the Greek phrase, me genoita. That's translated God forbid in the King James Version, and it's translated certainly not in the New King James Version. The Greek word for God in the King James Version doesn't actually appear in the text here, but in 1611, The English expressed their strongest rejection of an idea with this phrase, God forbid. Righteousness has never been dependent upon perfect compliance, but on a heart surrendered to God. Undoubtedly, that's why Paul quotes from this chapter, chapter 51 of Psalm, 
where David is repenting for his sin against God in the Bathsheba episode that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Paul addresses a little bit of slander toward him in verses 8 and 9. People who don't understand the relationship between law and grace, they still make the same accusations today. Here's what they assert. Since keeping the law of Moses doesn't add to one's righteous standing before God, why bother to do right? Well, the more you sin, the more God forgives. Paul didn't teach that. Though it does appear that his doctrine of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ was skewed by his enemies to imply that. Oh, well, you can't make people tell the truth about you, can you? In these first nine verses, Paul attempts to put the law into perspective for those Jewish and Gentile readers who may be confused regarding its purpose. And here it is. The law condemns the Jew. It does not justify the Jew. Then we see in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 3 that no one is righteous before God on their own. Verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." So Paul here talks about the depravity of man in verses 10 through 18. Now, if the language seems particularly flowery for Paul, it's because he's quoting portions from the Psalms and other Old Testament passages to make his point. He quotes here Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 10, 7, Psalm 36, 1, Psalm 58, 4, Psalm 140, verse 3, and Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16. All those are quoted in Paul's discourse here in these verses. Undoubtedly, Paul drew heavily from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 2 through 8, in his statements regarding the depravity of man. Let me read those verses to you. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Continuing in Isaiah 59, now verse 3. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies, and from that which is crushed a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands." Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. So you see, Paul quoted heavily from that passage in Isaiah 59. Then Paul makes what I consider a monumental statement about the law's relationship to righteousness in verses 19 and 20. And here it is. 
The law exposes guilt. Look closely at verse 20. It says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Living a good moral life, it doesn't save. Living a good moral life, it doesn't save. Oh, by the way, living a good moral life, it doesn't save. Well, that's enough. One more time. Living a good moral life, it just does not save. Incidentally, those who are under the law, that's a direct reference to the Jews. Gentiles were not under the law of Moses, just Jews. You recall that chapter 2 dealt with the issue of the Jews being under the law of Moses and not the Gentiles. They were not under the law of Moses. So then you might ask, what does save? Well, that brings us to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Well, it is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Beginning with verse 21, Paul drives a point that takes us all the way through Romans chapter 5, verse 21, and here it is. God's righteousness is imputed through justification. Notice Paul's transition into this discussion when he says in chapter 3 here, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Paul uses the next two chapters to validate this point. He then defines it specifically in verse 22 when he says, Even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all, and on all who believe, for there is no difference. So it's by faith to all and on all who believe. Notice at the end, for there is no difference, in other words, between salvation for Jews or Gentiles, both get saved the exact same way. Now I ask this question, can it be made any clearer? Verse 23 declares that all have sinned. Verse 24 then proclaims that salvation is a product of grace when it says being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then verse 28 is the capper here. It says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. A dose of theology is included in verse 25 with the phrase propitiation by His blood through faith. The Greek word for propitiation there is elasmos, and it means the means by which sins are forgiven. So, how are sins forgiven? Well, it's only because Jesus sacrificed his own blood on our behalf. In other words, the sinless life of Jesus is only the first part of the story. 
Our salvation requires that a sinless man pay the sin debt of sinful people. And that's what propitiation is all about, the means whereby we are saved. There's an interesting distinction in verse 30 between Jewish and Gentile justification, in other words, salvation. The Jews, being circumcised, are saved, it says, by, the Greek word ek, by means of, faith, and Gentiles, the uncircumcised, are saved through, the Greek word dia, or through faith. That word dia indicates a number of related points of time. Now, there's no question that Paul's making some sort of a distinction that has to do with the fact that the Jews had embraced the law of Moses prior to salvation, while the Gentiles had not done so. So after reading this, don't you wonder how so many people get so confused about what it takes to be righteous before God, I mean, to be saved? Could it be any clearer that it's not accomplished by keeping the law, but instead by trusting Christ's redemptive work on the cross? Paul's writing is quite adamant on this subject. He uses very strong words on the subject of true righteousness before God when he says, certainly not, in the New King James translated, God forbid, in the King James Version. He does so in verses 4, 6, and 31. The actual Greek phrase used is me gonoita, which is a very strong no way. In talking about the issue of righteousness in Paul's epistles, he uses this strong disclaiming phrase 14 times. He does so in several verses in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and Galatians. In the epistles, the phrase is unique to Paul. He was passionate about the gospel message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ only. In verse 31, Paul begins to introduce his explanation of another dominant misconception, that somehow Old Testament saints were made righteous by a different standard. In chapter 4, we'll see that people in the Old Testament were made righteous just like we are, and that's by faith. Chapter 4, Abraham's righteousness was through faith, not works. We see that in these verses, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the uncircumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to a seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Well, in these verses, Paul uses two heroes of the faith to make his point, Abraham and David. Beginning with Abraham, he makes clear that Abraham was not justified before God by his works. In verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, which says, And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. With this, he shows that even before the law was given, righteousness before God was achieved through faith, and it was not achieved by works. All the way back to Abraham. Verses 4 and 5 here are key. It says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Grace, which is the Greek word charis, means free gift. Now understand this. Salvation cannot be a free gift if you must do something to deserve it. Conversely, if salvation is a free gift obtained by simply trusting Christ by faith, then no amount of work you do has any relevance whatsoever. I emphasize this because Paul is clear about salvation here. No work to receive it, no work to maintain it. Many pastors teach a misguided doctrine that salvation is a free gift, but keeping salvation must be earned through a constant level of obedience. They teach that if you stop obeying, you lose the salvation. Now, if that's true, and by the way, it's way not true, but if that's true, then scratch verses 4 and 5 right here, right out of your Bible. Then in verse 6 through verse 8, Paul quotes from David in Psalm 32. He makes it clear that David didn't believe salvation came through works either. Isn't it interesting that Paul quotes from David again as he did in chapter 3, both Psalms 32 and 51. Having been written by David, by the way, after he was implicated for murder and adultery by Nathan the prophet. Nonetheless, David is highly commended before God for his heart for the Lord. See the notes on Psalm 51 if you wonder more about that. Then in verses 9 through 15, he points out that righteousness or salvation is not a product for only law-keeping Jews, those of the circumcision, but everyone who receives it by faith. Paul makes a cute point in verse 11 for the Jews' benefit about Abraham's righteousness here when he notes that the declaration of Abraham's righteousness by faith in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 took place before the rite of circumcision was instituted in Genesis chapter 17. That means that Abraham was righteous in the sight of God before he was circumcised. Another subtle point is made with regard to Jew and Gentile righteousness in verses 12 through 14 when he declares that Abraham's legacy of faith was not restricted to his physical Jewish offspring, but to all through the ages who received Jesus Christ by faith. Paul's very specific about that doctrinal point in Galatians chapter 3.16 when he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he does not say, And to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Now that's some pretty heavy doctrine there, but it's doctrine that must be understood in order to understand the full weight of faith in Jesus Christ. If that's not clear to you, spend some time studying the notes on Galatians chapter 3. These 15 verses provide us with a powerful and compelling basis for the fact that works have nothing to do with salvation. 
getting it or keeping it. That's why he uses Abraham and David to illustrate his point. Abraham was righteous before God before he took the token of Jewishness being circumcision. And the most compelling argument for salvation by grace apart from works is Paul's usage of David as a model. Though he was an adulterer and a murderer, he was saved by grace and found righteous before God. Now, don't misunderstand. There was a heavy consequence for David's sin. But that consequence did not include the loss of his salvation. David never, never, never lost his salvation. The term circumcision means Jews, and uncircumcision means everyone else being Gentiles. It's important to restate the theme of these verses. The law of Moses has nothing to do with righteousness before God. It's always been an issue of faith, all the way back to Abraham, before the law was even given. And then we see in verses 16 through 25 that it's not a Jewish thing, this salvation. Verse 16, Therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Paul's very clear on this issue. He's wearing it out, so to speak. God promised Abraham he would bless many nations through his seed, not just the physical line of Isaac and Jacob. He makes this point in verses 17 and 18. Now study the notes on Galatians chapter 3 for more perspective on this issue. The remaining verses of this chapter make the point that Abraham never doubted God's promise, even when it appeared that Sarah could bear no children. We see that in Genesis chapters 16 and 17. Abraham was a man of faith, and it was Abraham's faith, not works, that made him righteous before God. Likewise, for us, it's all about faith for salvation, not works at all. What is imputed righteousness? In the closing verses of this chapter, Paul talks about our righteousness and that of Abraham as being imputed. The Greek word there is logizomai. It means to reckon. And that's imputed righteousness to us. It's a simple concept that reinforces the fact that salvation is acquired as a free gift from God, and it cannot be obtained through good works. When one trusts Jesus Christ as Savior, righteousness is transferred to us. We're righteous because God reckons us to be righteous. Now, let's be clear. None of us are on our way to heaven because of anything good we've done. We're on our way to heaven because we trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, and we've had righteousness transferred or imputed to us by God himself. 
Paul ties it all together in verses 24 and 25 when he says, But also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Using the examples of imputed righteousness for Abraham and David, Paul shows that our righteousness as believers is also imputed from God as we trust the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Romans 5.1 continues the discussion as Paul proclaims this. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll be looking at that chapter in four days. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton. 